Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Watch podcast series. I'm John Briggs, Global Head of Death Strategy. This series helps you cut through the noise of global financial markets with a quick take on the upcoming trends to watch. Hello, everyone. Since the last Weekly Watch was recorded, we've gotten the latest U.S. employment report, where strength in the data has showed further progress towards the Fed's goals. This has helped push U.S. yields up from their summer lows to the point where we've almost taken back all of what happened in July in just a couple of weeks here in August. But it isn't just the employment data in the U.S. that's perking up, which has also dragged U.K. to a lesser extent European yields higher. It's been the amount of Fed speak and Fed communication. The one I'll focus on this week is a speech from Vice Chair, Vice Chair Richard Clarida, where he said, and I'm paraphrasing literally, that if we see more than 3% core inflation between now and the end of the year, that they will basically have met their inflation goals under their new regime. Under the Fed's new policy regime, called flexible average inflation targeting, their goal on the inflation side is to make up for past shortfalls by overshooting on inflation. The vice chair said if we get that sort of inflation, then the inflation box will be checked. Given we ourselves forecast higher than 3% inflation between now and the end of the year, for us, that's important. And it's important because it means that as long as the other side of the mandate, which is the employment side, continues to show progress, the Fed will taper and then eventually raise rates. And when Fed reduces accommodation, it has an impact globally. And it's here that I want to bring in Brian Dangerfield, our co-head of G10 FX strategy. So first question, Brian, I set the table, my clarity comments and how the most recent job status helped continue progress towards their goals and eventually towards tapering. What more do you think we need to see on the jobs front to get a taper announcement? And has our taper timeline changed at all? John, thank you very much for having me. So on the jobs front, I think we really need to see more of the same. You know, over the past two months, we've had around 940,000 um, net gain in employment, looking at headline employment. Um, both of those numbers, you know, reflect um, very strong levels of job gains, uh, certainly stronger than the early parts of the year. And generally, over the course of the last few months, we've also seen progress in the labor market continue to improve. You know, we've seen steady pickup in the level of, uh, of job gains. And so do we need to see a further acceleration from here to get tapering over the next few months uh, started? I don't think so. I think as long as we see continued gains in the realm of what we have been seeing, I think that's probably going to be satisfactory to meet the Fed's goal of substantial further progress, as they call it. As far as our timeline is concerned, we have shifted forward our timeline for the start of the taper a bit, sort of uh, over the you know, a couple of months ago, we were thinking that most likely announcement would be December for a January start uh, for the taper. I think what's more likely now is a November announcement for a December start to the taper. And that thinking about the sequencing of events, uh, we think September is probably the time when the Fed gives what they've been calling ample notice of taper. So Powell's made a big deal recently over saying we need to give the market ample notice before we execute on any taper. We think the September meeting is when the Fed gives that detail and gives that what they call ample notice in anticipation of an announcement at the early November meeting uh, to begin the taper. So that's the timeline. Uh, what does taper actually look like? So there's a lot of different ways to reduce monthly purchases of 120 billion down to zero. Um, and in coming up with a scenario, uh, our baseline scenario of a reduction of 15 billion per meeting, 10 billion of USTs, one, uh, excuse me, 5 billion of MBS, um, we considered a couple of factors, um, the speed of the taper and you know, really the simplicity of, uh, of the taper. 
So we think looking back at the 2013 experience, um, the signaling of the taper, I think we can say, uh, was executed poorly. We had the taper tantrum, as we all know. Um, but I think the actual execution of the taper itself was considered a significant success. And a couple of things from that experience that we think the Fed will want to keep is a steady monthly pace, a relatively gradual pace, and one which gives flexibility to change the pace, but it's unlikely to actually change. You can think about from a financial stability perspective, I don't think the Fed wants the market to go into each FOMC meeting over the next seven or eight months, wondering if the taper pace is going to slow or speed up dramatically. So our taper on that note, if it begins in November, announced in November to begin in December, the final announcement of a reduction would be at the September 2022 meeting. So tapering officially ends in October. In that case, we think that lines up very well with where we think the Fed median is, maybe at the end of 2022 for the first rate hike, beginning of 2023 for the uh, or beginning of 2023 for the first rate hike. So we think that lines up pretty nicely with where the Fed currently is in terms of hiking the policy rate. We don't think we think there's strong resistance to hiking the policy rate during the taper. Um, and so they get their gradual taper. They run it down slowly. Uh, in this case, they run it down symmetrically, though some have uh, argued that they want to run down MBS faster. Uh, and we think that lines up pretty nicely with the where the Fed, we think the Fed is in terms of when they want to hike the policy rate. And so uh, we think the taper uh, at 10 billion USTs per month, 5 billion USTs, uh, excuse me, MBS per meeting uh, that runs down uh, over the course of about 10 months or so. Okay. So I'm going to put on my rates hat again and say that I think this process is going to reinvigorate the move to higher yields, especially with the backdrop of higher inflation as we go through the year, though, led more for by the five-year point. So in the U.S., it's more of a flatter curve going forward. But going back to the global implications, what are the implications for G10FX, for euro, for sterling versus the dollar or more broadly? Well, look, I mean, we're moving in the direction of the Fed removing accommodation, which is a very significant development from a global risk and from a global growth perspective. And it's really moved the risks more in favor of the dollar. I think to an extent that this is this is priced in, um, that there is an expectation that tapering will begin. But, you know, we have growth in the U.S. has been improving fiscal stimulus odds. I think it's fair to say have been rising and the Fed being more data dependent and moving towards tapering has increased the event risk around a number of key events, whether it be jobs reports, CPI reports, Jackson Hole Fed speech later this month. Um, and so we've adjusted our positions on the FX side. Uh, we were sort of more bearish, more negative on the dollar at the early parts of the year. We've turned more neutral here. And in some cases, we're actually positive. We think higher yields likely to lead to dollar gains versus some pairs that are traditionally more sensitive to move in relative yield. Uh, that includes dollar yen and dollar Swiss against the Swiss franc. And so um, the dollar landscape has shifted, I think, more in favor of the dollar as the Fed has moved in the direction of tapering. And uh, as a result, we think the outlook is much more balanced than it was at the turn of the year. So last question, you mentioned risk a little bit. Um, what about emerging markets? I know you're the G10FX strategist, but you know, EM risk more generally, uh, will this shake the boat even more? Uh, or will EM be able to withstand this uh, process? 
I think it'll depend on the movement in rates and specifically how fast and how volatile we get a movement in rates. So if the Fed were to deliver a significantly hawkish surprise uh, and one that really comes, it catches the market off guard and you see a, a very fast move higher in rates, that's certainly something that's going to play negative for emerging markets and for wider risk. We know that um, carry interest rate differential is, is pretty significant when it comes to uh, investment decisions in emerging markets. Um, and if the Fed were to do something that were to significantly adjust the carry differentials in a very short period, uh, that's something that we know can have some negative implications. And so uh, from an EM perspective, you know, our colleagues do have uh, some favorites. Um, you know, those in particular are places where you already have seen some rate hikes come through, which have helped buffer against, you know, likely move higher in, in U.S. rates. But for right now, we think relative value in emerging markets makes more sense than being outright long or short or long EM, I should say, against the dollar, because we are in this period where event risk is higher. And we know the Fed is transitioning towards a more uh, more hawkish stance. And that's something that is a challenge. All right. Thanks a lot, Brian. That was great and helpful on many fronts. So that's it for this week. Everybody, we have uh, UK CPI next week. It's a quiet central bank meeting that we get the Fed minutes, the last meeting, which could give us further light to shine on the taper discussion. Thank you and have a good week. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Weekly Watch. Please subscribe to our channel to get future episodes. We also encourage you to explore more of our content on our website and other social media channels.